0: It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado, with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we've been walking through Ephesians chapter 1, at least the first section here. And uh, we've been in this blessing section, which starts in verse 3 and goes down to verse 14. And again, just as maybe some quick review, Uh, verses 3 down to verse 14 is split into three key sections. Uh, We have the blessings that we have from the Father, which is verses 3 down to verse 6. We have the blessings that we have in the Son, which is 7, verses 7 down to verse 12. And then we have the blessings we have in the Holy Spirit, which is verses 13 and 14. And as I've consistently been reminding everyone every single week, every single blessing finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which I think is so amazing. And obviously, this is not a complete list, but if you, if you were to walk through all of Scripture, there's this phenomenal list of blessing after blessing after blessing that we get to participate in, uh, that we get to experience. But we have to realize that every single blessing that God has for us in our lives is, finds its fulfillment, finds its climactic reality in one single place, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 1:3, that all things that we need for life or for godliness is found in Christ Jesus. And again, I, don't, I can't think of anything that I need outside of life and godliness. So here's Paul. He's, he's going through this entire list of blessings that we have in Jesus. Now, last time we were together, uh, we were looking at verses 7 and 8, and I'd like to go back there this morning. Uh, so he's beginning the section about the blessings we have in the Son. And he says in verse 7, if you have your Bibles, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Let me read that again. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. What a phenomenal thought. Uh, last time we were looking at this idea specifically of the forgiveness and the redemption. And again, just as some reminders, forgiveness, the idea of forgiveness, is being pardoned from sin. It's a cancellation of debt and penalty as if you never committed the sin. And as we were walking through last time, here's my life, and I have a whole list of sins, these deeds, these activities that I have done. Uh, I put myself in chains, uh, in bondage to sin. And death, and, and here's my whole list of sins. And what does God do? He takes my list of sins and, like, pfft, removes it. Uh, he, he puts free on it. Uh, it's covered by the blood, and He cannot see the deeds any longer, whatever language you want to use. And there's this phenomenal reality that my chains have been set free, and this, hey, the, the the sins of my life have, have been forgiven. Hey, they've been removed. It's, uh, the transgressions has been tossed off, and God is no longer looking at the transgressions. Uh, they are no longer counting against me. Uh, the cancellation of the debt has been paid. Uh, I mean I've been freed by the reality of the cross, which is, just, that's just stunning to me, because I don't deserve that. But not only that, Paul says, I just don't receive the forgiveness of the sins. I have redemption from sin itself. And again, redemption is this idea of being set free from captivity or slavery through the payment of a ransom. And again, the best picture of this is if you go to the Old Testament, it's the idea of the Passover lamb. So here the Israelites, they're in bondage to Egypt for 400 years, and on this phenomenal day, God shows up, and through the blood of a lamb, frees the Israelites from captivity and slavery to Egypt, and brings them into freedom and redemption and life. And that, you understand, is a symbol, or a picture, or a metaphor that's used all throughout scripture to talk about our personal lives. And it's this reality That just as the blood of the lamb set the Israelites free from Egypt and brought them into life and access to the promised land, so too our lives have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This blood of the Passover lamb has been shed on our behalf, and now we have been set free. Our chains have been broken. Egypt and sin and death no longer has a claim on our life. We now can walk in victory and triumph and purity and life which is exciting. So you get this idea from Paul that what God is doing in our life is he's allowing us, he's enabling us to live out the life that he has called us to live. Well, the life he has called us to live is utterly impossible. Hey, you cannot walk in the life that he has called you to live outside of him. I cannot in my own effort, I cannot in my own ability, I cannot in my own intellect live out the life that he is calling me to live. I look at scripture and I just, <laughs> I'm a miserable failure. Why? Because in and of myself, I cannot do this. And yet by his grace, he enables me to live out something that I, I cannot otherwise live. And we call that Christianity. So you, you begin to get this tone, especially in Paul's, Paul's, Paul's letters, that there's this, The triumphant, victorious, holy, pure, righteous life that we are called to to live as Christians is possible. I, I don't have to live under the tyranny of sin any longer. I can walk in freedom and triumph. Now, again, we're not talking about sinless perfection. But but the reality is, is I don't have to live under the the tyranny, the thumb, the chains of sin and death any longer. I I can live in purity. I can live in holiness. I can walk in righteousness and truth and life. And that's the reality of all that Christ has purchased for us. Now, as we come back into our passage here, now, again, that was all a reminder from last time. But Paul says in our passage, verse 7 and 8, In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. And that is phenomenal, as we just talked about. But he says this forgiveness and this redemption is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now, back several studies ago, uh, I think it was study 14 of this series, we were talking about God's amazing grace. And again, if you want to dive more into grace, you can go back and listen to that message. But what's amazing is is that the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of our lives from sin itself is made possible according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Now, I came across this quote, and I want to read it to you because I just thought it was phenomenal. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher uh, from yesteryear, uh, was talking about grace, and this is what he said. Uh, This theme, talking of grace obviously filled the mind and the heart of this great apostle. It was something that ravished his heart. As Philip Doddridge assures us, grace was to Paul a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, It ravished Paul's heart and moved his entire being. He never mentions grace without going into some kind of ecstasy. The word always calls forth his superlatives. It has so gripped him and amazed him and moved him that he could scarcely control himself. I love that phrase. That God's grace, according to Paul, always calls forth superlatives. Now, if you don't know what a superlative is, oh, I'm going to give you a lesson. Superlatives, I think, hands down, are my all-time favorite words in the entire world. I, I, I just love good superlatives. Now, a superlative <clears throat> is those words that are really unnecessary in our language, and yet so vital and necessary to our language. Uh, we, we come to this, this event, uh, we look at the sunset, and we go, wow, that's a great sunset. The word great is a superlative. Uh, it's this idea, it's, it's a word, it's like those add-on words that just kind of beef up and make things better, and it's like, that's amazing, that's phenomenal, that's incredible. Those are superlatives. And again, it's like, they're not really needed. That was very amazing. That'd be two superlatives, right? Uh, you don't even, it, it, was, it was good, but it's not good. It was better than good. So we have to come up with these words that suggest that something was better than good. So we, we use a superlative. Great. Amazing. So here's my short list. Uh, years ago, uh, I started making a list of all my superlatives, all my favorite superlatives. And I think I'm up to like 200 superlatives or something now. Uh, but here, here, I'm not going to read them all. But here is some of my favorite doozies of superlatives. Uh, Astounding, bodacious, breathtaking, delightful, epic, phantasmagorical, glorious, gnarly, groovy, illustrious, incredible, marvelous, prodigious, snazzy, sensational, tubular. Aren't those great words? Man, I wish we'd bring some of these back. Uh, It's fun as you look at culture, culture slowly shifts with our superlatives, right? Back in like the 60s and 70s, it was like, dude, that is totally groovy, right? And then 70s became more like, dude, that is tubular, right? This, this moment in life that's like totally tubular. In the 80s, I remember growing up, and it was rad. Dude, that is rad. It was radical, and then we shortened it to rad because radical started taking us too long to say. So it became rad. And then in the 90s, uh, it was the bomb. Dude, that is the bomb, and I remember as a teenager walking into our Sunday school class and one of the older teenagers was like, yeah, that's the bomb. And having no clue what he's talking about, I'm like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it sounds like you're talking about something good, but bombs blow things up and that's bad. So and he's like, no, no, it's like, it's like sick. Right, which is like the early 2000s thing. Right, and then it became, that's bad, which really was good. Right, so we have this progression of superlatives as culture and and I don't I don't know if this is still being used but I was told by someone in Chicago that the popular superlative amongst the gang members in Chicago is the word church dude that is church which I think is hilarious because I don't think any of them have ever been to church but that's the big superlative in the gang members for the gang members of Chicago so you start getting this idea that these superlatives it's like You're so amazed, you're so wowed by some event or some reality that just normal language is insufficient. So I have to go into this box of superlatives and pull out this phenomenal word, this incredible word, this amazing word called a superlative to articulate whatever it is that we're talking about. Isn't it interesting when Paul is talking about the grace of God, almost every single time the word grace shows up in Paul's language, it is always connected with a superlative. In our passage, Paul says it is the riches of God's grace. And the word riches there is being used in the sense of a superlative. It's not just, well, God's grace forgives us. It's, wow, I am just so awestruck by the reality of the riches of God's grace that he has just dumped upon us that I'm getting to experience not a trickle of grace. It's not just, well, I get to experience his grace. This is, whoa, I am just lost in the realities of God's grace in my life. And the How do we articulate that? Well, I can't, outside of the superlative. So do you realize when we sing amazing grace, it's a superlative? Because God's grace is so beyond. God's grace is so immense. God's grace is so phenomenal, the only way we can talk about it properly is with a superlative. So depending on what era that hymn would've been written, it could've been the tubular grace of God. Would've been awesome, right? Or the radical grace of God. Or the bombness of the grace of God? That doesn't make any sense. Or, hey, God's grace is church, which is true. That is true. But do you realize that God's grace truly is amazing? It really is a superlative. Think about what God has done in our life. The fact that here's my life full of sins, and he has taken and he has pardoned my life, that he has wiped my transgressions from my life. How do you describe that? That That is... amazing, but that's not even a good enough word. It is phenomenal, but that's not even a good enough word. What Where would you put with this to recognize that my life is no longer what it used to be, that I can actually walk in triumph and victory and purity and holiness? The the fact that I've been shackled to sin all my life, and here's God and he breaks the chains by the blood of a lamb, what language would you use to describe that? Well, you're going to need a good superlative. That thing is bodacious. This is beyond phenomenal. I mean, phantasmagorical is too, it just pales. It's not a good enough superlative. It's almost like the only way we can describe the reality of God's grace is if you took every superlative and somehow enunciated God's grace by every superlative in the world. And even that, I think, just falls short. Because God's grace is beyond amazing. It truly is beyond phenomenal and incredible. To think that I can live as God calls me to live. Why? Because I am full of his spirit and he is enabling me to walk out the Christian life. That, that, that his life has forgiven me of sins. He's, He's broken the chain of tyranny to sin itself. That, that he has called me to live a life of righteousness and holiness and purity and truth. And he enables me to live this thing out. I don't, I don't, know, of a, I don't know of a word strong enough for that. Which is why we sing amazing grace. Because it's not just grace. This truly is amazing. We'll look back at verses 7 and 8 again. It talks about this idea that we've received forgiveness and redemption according to the riches of his grace. And then verse 8, Paul adds on, which he lavished upon us. He just lavished this thing. So again, he's using a superlative to talk about God's grace. But then he says, "Do do you know what he's done with this superlative grace? He has taken the superlative grace and he has lavished it upon us. And that word lavished, which is also, uh, often translated abound, uh, here's the definition. It means to shower upon or to provide something in abundance or to have more than enough. Uh, that word shows up several times in Scripture, but let me give you two examples just to kind of give you some context of how this word is being used in our passage. If you turn back to Matthew 14, uh, there's this phenomenal story, Jesus is up on this hill and he has this whole crowd of people. There was 5,000 men plus women and children. So likely there's probably 15 to 20,000 people. I mean, there's this huge group of people. And they're all there. They're, they're listening to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, uh, they're probably hungry. And we know that because every disciple of Jesus is hungry. And we've seen that in your life. So it makes sense that here's Jesus. He's looking at, at these people following him. They go, oh, they must be hungry. And so, hey, we've got to probably feed them. Now, Around here, you know, we, we cook for 100 people, and that's, that's, a, that's a lot of time, that's a lot of energy, and that's a lot of effort, a lot of money, you know, to feed even 100 people. But could you imagine having 5,000 men plus women and children and having to feed all of them? So Jesus goes to the disciples and says, hey, uh, let's feed these guys. And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Even a year's wage isn't enough to feed all these people. And you know how disciples eat. They, you know, they, they think golden corral. They just eat and eat and eat and eat. So hey, they, we just can't pass out crumbs, we have to give food. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And of course, they scrounge around, and they find this little boy, that they, and they steal his lunch, and uh, they find out this little boy had five loaves of bread. Now, growing up, I imagined, you know, my mom would b- bake bread, and she'd make loaves of bread. You realize this kid, for lunch, is not bringing five loaves of bread. Right? <laughs> it makes sense. And two fish, right? I'm thinking, like, big salmon, Right, that's not a kid's, he, we're talking a Happy Meal, right? It's probably five little biscuits, right, and two little sardines, in reality. So here's this kid that has a little Happy Meal lunch, and Jesus says, okay, that'll work. Which makes no sense in, in the natural realm. But Jesus has everyone sit down in groups of 50, and gives the food to Peter, and, you know, and blesses it, all that kind of stuff. And says, hey, Peter, go out there and start feeding the people. And <laughs> could, you, could you imagine Peter? Here's Peter, he has this biscuit, and he looks at the first guy and he's like, well, take a pinch. Because this, this has to last for, you know, 5,000 men plus women and children. And no doubt, the guy probably ripped it in half. And Peter's like, we're in trouble. But could you imagine the reality that as, as they're breaking and passing and breaking and passing, this thing is multiplying as it's being broken and passed. And, and, and it's amazing to me, too, that the miracle was not in the hands of Jesus. The miracle was in the hands of the people that as they were breaking and passing, it was multiplying in their hands. It's just a phenomenal thought. And they get done eating, and it truly was, it was better than Golden Corral, because they could have had as much as they wanted of these biscuits and these little sardines, and by the time they got done, they collected all the leftovers, and they had 12 basketfuls, 12 basketful of of, of leftovers. That's more than what they started with. Do you realize, and and by the way, uh, let me read this. This is a, Matthew 14, verse 15. It says that they were, that they all ate, they all ate, and were filled. In other words, they didn't just have crumbs, right? They could have as much as they wanted. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragrant, fragrance, sorry, fragments that remained. That word remain is our word. It's that idea of lavished. It's that idea of abundance or abounding. So, so what is it saying? Well, there's, this, there's these 12 basketfuls that were just lavish, that they were, there was more than abundant. Uh, it was more than poured out for what they needed. Do you realize that's how God functions? And, and just as there was five small little biscuits and two little sardines, and that equal feeding 5,000 men plus women and children plus filling full 12 baskets of leftovers, and that we look at that whole thing and go, wow, that, was, that food was lavished. Hey, that, that food abounded hey, that thing was supplied more than necessary. Hey, that is how God's grace works in our life. Uh, another example, if you want it, is in uh, 2 Corinthians 9.8. Two times in that passage, Paul uses that word abound or lavished. And uh, the verse says this, 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound towards you so that you, always having enough of everything, may abound to every good work. Do you realize that God's grace has been lavishly poured out? It has been dumped. It has been just cascading. It, has been, it is more than enough. It is greatly sufficient. It, it, is, it is beyond all that you could ask or imagine. That this is not a little trickle. This is lavish. Now, I love the Greek language, and the reason I love the Greek language is because every word in Greek is picturesque. It paints pictures. And if I can put it into our context the picture that the word lavished in the Greek paints is the, idea of a, is the idea of a massive waterfall. So imagine Niagara Falls. If you've ever been up in the Niagara Falls area, it's this beautiful, beautiful waterfall. And of course, you get on the little boat, and it's like that misty ride. You know, they put you up near the, near the falls, and the mist is drenching you. And you're not even in the falls, and just the mist itself is just drenching you. So I looked up a few statistics, and let me just give you, some statistics on Niagara Falls. Uh, depending on where you're at at the falls, the height of the falls is between 50 and 188 feet. And for you Canadians, you'll have to interpret this in meters or whatever. But, uh, but between 50 and 188 feet. And get this, the amount of water that is flowing over Niagara Falls, every single second, is 681,750 gallons. Every second is being dumped off the side of Niagara Falls, uh, uh, of the Horseshoe Falls. Now that water falls at 32 feet per second over Horseshoe Falls, which means it hits the base of the falls with a, with a force of 2,500 tons. Amount of force. I don't even know how to interpret that, but that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a lot. So I know this is, this is a dumb illustration, and in, and in fact it's impossible, but imagine you take this cup And you go over to Niagara Falls, and you put the cup underneath the falls. Which, if it's falling at 2,500 tons per, you know, a force, (laughs) that's not going to work. But imagine you could. Imagine I take this cup, and I put it underneath Niagara Falls. How long would it take to fill up the cup? Well, with 650,000 gallons coming down every second, it's probably not going to take that long. Right? So, So here's this cup, and suddenly, poof. Now it's full. Now what's going to start happening to the cup? It's going to start dumping over. Do you realize that is God's grace in our life? It is more than enough. It is greatly sufficient. It is being lavished. It's like a waterfall of this torrent of grace is being dumped out upon our life. It is a waterfall of a superlative of grace that is being dumped upon our life. And Paul says, do you recognize That you and I, in Christ Jesus, get to experience forgiveness and redemption according to this superlative grace that is just like a waterfall being dumped upon you. That God doesn't give a trickle of grace to you. This is not, well, if you're really good, I'll give you a droplet. And if you're really good again, I'll give you another droplet. And if you really, really need it and you ask really, really hard, I'll give you another droplet. That's not how God, that's not how God functions. I mean, think about this. When God created the universe, do you realize He had the ability to make everything in black and white? But He didn't. He, he chose a million, probably a bazillion, that's not even a word, but I made it up. A bazillion shades and colors and varieties. Why? Because he, he abounds, He just lavishes. And think about our life. He is coming and He's rescuing. He's bringing an abundance in our life of Himself. And his grace, his enabling grace for us to live out the Christian life. Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live out the Christian life, life like I'm supposed to. What are you talking about? God's grace has been lavished. It has been dumped. It has been poured forth upon your life. It is more than you'll ever need. And we get to live in that reality. I, I love what Jesus says in John 10.10. 10. He says the thief comes but just to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. That word is our word. What kind of, how, what kind of life is Jesus pouring upon us? What kind of life is available to us as believers? What kind of life is is, being, is Jesus just dumping upon us? It is a life that is lavished. It's a life of abundance. It's a life that is more than you'll ever need. It's a life of, of it is a superlative if you will. It is a a superlative life that he gives us. That he doesn't just give us a little bit of life. He doesn't just give us a little bit of himself. He just doesn't give us a little bit of grace. He just dumps. He delights. He lavishes. He just takes this superlative grace and lavishes it upon us like a Niagara waterfall in our lives. We get to live in that. Isn't that exciting? So, a point of application. Are you experiencing that? Or do you see God's grace as a trickle that you're desperate to find? Because the reality is, is his grace is sufficient for all things. And you and I get to live in this reality. Am I daily walking in victory and triumph? Am I living by God's empowerment, his empowering grace, for me to live out the Christian life like I'm called to live? Am I still living under the tyranny of sin? Am I still living under the shackles of death death? Or am I walking in the freedom and the purity and the life and the triumph that God has so greatly purchased on the cross? And I must, what would it look like if I just lived in the understanding that I get to experience a superlative reality of grace that is a waterfall being lavished, dumped, poured forth in my life? I want to live in that reality every moment of every single day. Well, if you want to continue in our study, next week, uh, we're going to continue verse 8 and look at this idea of the fact that God has not only given us the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us, but he's lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. We're going to look at that concept uh, next week if you want to join us and study along. Uh, But let's just pray. Lord, you are so good. Lord, I am awestruck by the reality that Your grace. The only way I can talk about your grace is it must be tied into a superlative. Because your grace isn't just good. Your grace isn't just okay. Your grace is bodacious. Your grace is phenomenal. Your your grace is prodigious. Your, Your grace is incredible. Your grace truly is amazing. Lord, what would it look like if I lived in the reality of your grace moment by moment by moment? What would happen if I began to realize that your grace enables me to live out the Christian life, that it enables me to walk in holiness, it enables me to live in righteousness, it enables me to be triumphant in this world? Lord, what would it look like if I had this reality that your grace isn't just a trickle dumped upon or uh, given to me, it is lavishly dumped Pour forth like a Niagara waterfall upon my life. Lord, that would change how I think. That, that would change how I talk. That would change how I live. That would change my perspective on how I see circumstances and trials and difficulties. Lord, could you somehow enable me to live in the reality of your amazing waterfall of grace? Lord, may I never lose the perspective of the richness of your grace which you have lavished upon us. Lord, I want to walk in that reality afresh today. I want to behold your grace afresh today. I want to experience your enabling power afresh today, Jesus. And Lord, I'm convinced if we would live in that reality, it would turn the world upside down. That the world could not be the same if we as believers were living in the superlative waterfall of grace that we have access to. What a reality, Jesus, thank you that you loved us so much that you've provided all that we need for life and for godliness in you. We just give you the praise and the glory. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.